Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be talking about true love, love without attachment. This is covered in chapter 15 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nirvana. In this chapter, we discuss how you can establish relationships and conduct relationships without attachment helping you to realize how all the difficulties and struggles that you might be experiencing in relationships right now can all be eliminated through learning and practicing true love. Now, in order to understand true love, it's important that we dive into the Buddhist teachings and kind of remind you of a few things related to the Four Noble Truths as we enter into this topic about true love. But before we do, I would like to just start off our class today by sharing with you that I love you. I love every single one of you. I love every single person who's in our classes, who's outside of our classes, every single being. You can love everybody when you understand what is true love. You won't actually fall in love with people and out of love with people because your love will have no conditions whatsoever. But we're going to talk about that and help you understand how somebody can come to the point in the conclusion where you can just love everyone unconditionally. So let's first start off by talking about the second and the third noble truth. This is going to help to frame up our conversation today and help you to understand what we're talking about when we're discussing true love. Because the thing that the unenlightened mind is doing is it's misunderstanding craving desire attachment as love and this is why we struggle and this is why we have difficulties in our relationships because what the unenlightened mind understands as love actually isn't love at all i'm sure there's love in there but it's being confused with craving desire attachment and this is part of that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that third poison that the buddha talks about as we gain wisdom we can then see more clearly what is true love and actually practice true love in our relationships and then we'll experience better results but if we've got this craving desire attachment mixed in with our love then it's going to produce unwholesome results for us. And this is why we oftentimes struggle and have difficulties in our relationships with arguments and heated discussions or sadness or loneliness or despair or maybe guilt or shame. So let's first make sure that 
everyone who's attending today's class is at least on board and understands the second and third noble truth. It's helpful to know the first and the fourth as well, but as it relates to what we're talking about today, it's the second and third noble truth that's most important for us to understand and kind of remind you about before we actually talk about true love. The second noble truth that the Buddha describes is describes how all of our discontentedness, whether it's painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, is caused by craving desire attachment, where the mind wants things to be permanent when pretty much everything in the world is impermanent. But let's go through this and make sure you understand it with some examples. Discontentedness, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. These are all very painful to experience in the mind, and these are being caused by our craving desire attachments. This is discontentedness, when the mind is discontent. Some people might refer to this as suffering, but I don't use that word because it only describes kind of 33% or one-third of what the Buddha was talking about in terms of this part of his teachings. So I use this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. This painful feelings is caused by craving desire attachment. That's the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness where the mind has a certain object of its affection and it thinks if it can acquire this object of its affection, then it's going to get these pleasant feelings. The pleasant feelings are happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. This is what the mind is chasing after. And that chasing, that craving, desire, attachment, the objects of its affection, chasing after those pleasant feelings is part of the primary problem in the unenlightened mind. If it gets the objects of its affection, it will experience those pleasant feelings temporarily because it's basing its inner feelings on some temporary condition or some impermanent condition. So temporarily, the unenlightened mind will feel happiness, excitement, or elation based on the objects of its affection and what it's chasing after. But when it doesn't get what it wants, or if it loses what it's already got, then the mind experiences painful feelings. That sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. It can even go into things like boredom or loneliness or resentment or jealousy, stress, anxiety. All of these feelings are being caused by the human mind having this mental longing and strong eagerness or this craving desire attachments, wanting things to be permanent when things are impermanent. So as it relates to a relationship, We'll talk plenty about relationships, but if you've ever been involved in a relationship and the relationship ended for whatever reason and you experienced anger, frustration, irritation, sadness, or you experienced boredom or loneliness or you missed this person, you really wanted them to be in your life, that's the craving, desire, attachment causing the painful feelings. The longing with a strong eagerness wanting this person in your life permanently is what's causing 
the discontentedness. It's causing those painful feelings. Perhaps when you guys were together as a friend or a couple, when you were with that person, you felt happy. You felt excited. You felt elated. That's those pleasant feelings. And you are basing your inner feelings off of this impermanent condition of this person being with you in a relationship. So now when that person isn't with you any longer, the mind is still longing for those pleasant feelings based on this condition. And that condition no longer exists. So therefore, it's going to experience these painful feelings. The sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, anger, resentment, jealousy, or something like this. So this is how the unenlightened mind functions, is that it keeps experiencing these discontent feelings and it wants the objects of its affection. This is the real beginning of understanding the path to enlightenment. And we can relate this to other things too. If somebody dies, if you have a relationship and someone dies, the sadness or frustration or even anger some people have at the time of death when someone dies close to them. This is all because of the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. It's not the love. Love doesn't cause sadness. Love doesn't cause misery and heartache. It's the craving, desire, attachment that's doing that, not the actual love itself. But because the unenlightened mind misunderstands what love is, it thinks that when two people separate, either because of death or they just choose to no longer be in a relationship any longer, it thinks that because you love this person and now they're gone, that it's the love that's causing the painful feelings. But it's actually not the love. It's the craving, desire, attachment, which we're going to get into more today after I kind of help you with this reminder. If we want to apply this second noble truth to something that's not a relationship, I oftentimes use the analogy of a car. If you buy a brand new car and you sign the papers, you drive it to a store, you go inside and you come out and you notice there's a scratch on the car, then the mind can oftentimes get angry or irritated or frustrated because they see this scratch on the car. The scratch isn't causing the anger or the person who scratched the car isn't causing the anger. What's causing the anger is the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, wanting this car to permanently be beautiful and shiny as you drove it off the showroom floor. And when you observe this impermanence and you realize that this car is not permanent, because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence, it chooses to get angry. The unenlightened mind is untrained. It's undisciplined. It lacks wisdom. And because it's lacking wisdom and it's untrained, instead it gets angry or frustrated or irritated because of this scratch, rather than recognizing, hmm, that makes sense. It got scratched because it's impermanent. Now let me go get it fixed. Or is there anybody around here that's taking responsibility for it that is going to choose to get it fixed? There's lots of different options other than getting angry or frustrated or having some kind of conduct that's going to be harmful to you or to other people around us. Because sometimes the ego gets involved and there's people that have actually been murdered over scratches on cars before. And that person now has ruined their life 
just because their mind didn't understand impermanence and they were lacking this wisdom, they were lacking this moral conduct, and they were lacking this mental discipline. So understanding what craving, desire, attachment is, and that that is the true cause of all discontentedness, then the way to eliminate this discontentedness, the third noble truth, is that we eliminate discontentedness through eliminating craving, desire, attachment. By eliminating this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent, thinking that things should be permanent, then you can eliminate the discontentedness that is arising in the mind. The mind can let go, no longer longing with a strong eagerness for things to be done a certain way, and instead can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the enlightened mental state because it realizes that it's causing its own discontentedness. The reason why you can attain enlightenment and eliminate all these discontent feelings is because you're the one that's causing all of these discontent feelings. If it was somebody else's fault that you're getting angry, then that means you have to train everyone in the world to do things your way, which is impossible. You can't do that. There's 7.5 billion people in the world, and there's more people being born every day. So you have to have a massive training program to get everyone to do things your way. Or instead, you can just train one mind to understand these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught. And by training just your mind to have this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, well, now you can eliminate discontentedness when you undergo training of the mind, eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You can eliminate discontentedness because it's your own mind that's actually causing it. So I just would like to remind you guys of those and give you guys a chance to ask any questions because we've got different people that have joined this program at different times and not everybody was here when I've talked about all the Four Noble Truths before. The way that you can ask a question is either in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your question into the comment section. Our moderators, James, Bassam, and Manal will see that and get your question asked during the class. In Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and the moderators will call on you and make sure you can ask your question directly or any follow-up questions that you have. So let me just pause here and see what questions you guys have before we move on in describing true love and this misunderstanding that the unenlightened mind has about love. <clears throat> Would you say, David, that whether it's love or any other area of our life, the discontent mind is always going to have an object of its discontent and that's essentially what the second and third noble truth are pointing toward? Yes, as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's going to be discontentedness, always. It's not until a being fully eliminates craving, anger, and ignorance, which are the high-level view of the problems in the mind. The detailed-level view is the ten fetters. It's not until you eradicate all of this through the training that the Buddha provides that the mind is then going to be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because the mind will then be unconditioned. The reason why the mind is experiencing discontentedness is because it's basing its feelings on some impermanent condition. It's happy because I got a new car. 
It's excited because I got a new job. It's euphoric because I got a raise at work. It's experiencing those pleasant feelings because of some impermanent condition. Therefore, those pleasant feelings are temporary. And then the mind's going to move to sadness or anger or frustration or irritation because it's basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. So if your kids come home with a bad report card, that's disagreeable to you. You don't like that. So the mind might get frustrated or irritated or annoyed or angered. Or somebody says something displeasing and disagreeable to you. You don't like them talking about you in a negative way. The mind craves permanence. It wants everybody to talk about you in a polite, kind, and friendly way. And it's just not going to happen in this world. So because everybody's talking in various ways, it's disagreeable to you that they've said something negative about your person or your appearance. Therefore, the mind gets painful feelings. Or you have your job and you enjoy this job and then you get laid off because the economy goes bad. So now because the mind is holding on to this job and finds such pleasure in it, once it's gone, that's when the mind now, because of its longing for a strong eagerness to hold this job permanently, now it experiences painful feelings. So it's not until you eradicate all of this And there's a lot, you know, there's the three poisons, there's the 10 fetters, there's understanding this whole path to enlightenment. And as you implement the various solutions and remedies that the Buddha suggests and the Buddha provides, when you understand those remedies and you implement them on a consistent basis, you will see that the mind will gradually be trained to eliminate discontentedness 100%. And part of eliminating that discontentedness for us is to understand true love because as long as we think of love as attachment which is what the unenlightened mind tends to do then you're never going to be able to get to a state of peacefulness in your relationships because instead of practicing true love you're actually got this love in there i'm sure you've got love in there but it's being tainted It's being polluted with this craving, desire, attachment, wanting things to be a certain way in your relationships. And when they're not that way, then the mind becomes discontent. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. Okay. So let's talk about what is true love then. Now that you understand what craving, desire, attachment is, is this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be a certain way, We even talk about expectations or wants or holding or grasping. That's what craving, desire, attachment is. Wanting things to be a certain way and having these certain objects of your affection. Well, what true love is, is true love is that when you have care for another person, but you don't need anything or want anything from them specifically in the relationship. All you're interested in is seeing this person be well and seeing them be peaceful. That's what true love is. What we tend to do in the unenlightened state is we tend to want certain things. We have certain expectations of the relationship and of this other person. And when we put our expectations on this other person, that's where the real struggles and difficulties come in. A relationship that has true love isn't going to have conditions. There's not going to be this conditioned love. 
But because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what is unconditional love, we're over here trying to do what we think is love, and we're practicing that, and we're trying to do that, but it just isn't working out, and we don't realize it, we don't see it. And because we don't have right view in the unenlightened state, because we think that it's not our problem, it's the other person who's the problem, then the problem just continues. This is why we have one failed relationship after another failed relationship after another failed relationship because we never actually learn the wisdom of what is true love and how to apply that in our life practice in a way that allows us to have peaceful relationships. So what this craving desire attachment is, masquerading as love, or being misunderstood as love, is we meet another person, we see them and we're like, oh wow, this person is either physically attractive or maybe intellectually attractive, or there's some other qualities that you're attracted about this person. And then you strike up a conversation or they strike up a conversation and you get to know each other. And maybe you go out to the movies or you go out on a walk or you go out to have uh, some food together in a restaurant. And as you do, this first part of the relationship is just utterly perfect. It's so wonderful. When you leave their presence, it's like, wow, that was such a great time. It was so enjoyable. It just feels perfect. It feels wonderful. And the reason why is because at the beginning part of a relationship, you typically don't want anything from the person. The only thing you're interested in is spending time together or getting to know this person. And this first part of the relationship feels very wonderful because there has not yet been craving, desire, attachment that's formed. The only interest of both parties typically at the beginning is just to get to know each other. But eventually, the more time you spend together with this other person, the more and more pleasant feelings that you experience. When you have your first date, for example, and then you go away and the person actually calls you again and says, hey, I would like to go out with you again. That phone call or that email or that text message, it makes you feel good inside. Wow, they're interested in me. Somebody's actually interested in me. And you get pleasure from that. You get happiness. You get excitement. You get a certain amount of thrill because of that. And then as this goes on where you guys spend more and more time together, the mind keeps getting these pleasant feelings. And it's just like a drug. It kind of takes more of something to produce those pleasant feelings more and more and more and more. Well, eventually, as this relationship continues, you start forming expectations of the other person. You want them to make you happy because when you're around them, you feel happy. When you're away from them, you feel lonely or like you miss them. Or you want them to be with you and not with other friends. And when you see them with other friends, you're jealous or envious, right? This is how the mind's holding on. It has this mental longing with a strong eagerness wanting to keep this person permanently. That's the whole problem with the unenlightened mind is it's holding on and it wants things to be permanent. Well, as you put more and more expectations out there and this person starts maybe giving you gifts or taking you out or you guys move in together or whatever it is, these list of expectations just keeps growing and growing and growing. 
because the way craving desire attachment is, is it's never satisfied. It always wants more. So the unenlightened mind in a relationship is going to just keep adding more and more things that you want from the relationship. Certain amount of time together. You know, I expect you to be doing this and doing that and doing these things. You know, coming home at a certain time or washing the dishes or going to the store and doing this and doing that. But when you have expectations and you cast those onto the other person, they can't meet them permanently because of impermanence. They're unable to fulfill your obligations in this list of expectations that you've set for them, this growing list of expectations, because this expectations are actually in your mind. Even if you communicated them to the other person, they still wouldn't be able to fulfill them because it's not possible for them to permanently fulfill your expectations. But because this growing list of expectations is all in your own mind, this just keeps growing and growing and growing, where at the beginning they were meeting your expectations and you might have said, I am in love with you. I am now in love with you. Once your list gets so long, you eventually sabotage the relationship and you crush it because you're putting expectations on the other person and expecting them to be a certain way. And then when they're not fulfilling those expectations, they're not meeting your conditions. They're not giving you what you want. That's where the mind experiences sadness or anger or frustration. And now you're attributing those painful feelings to this person who's not doing what you want. When in reality, you're actually causing the painful feelings yourself because of the craving desire attachment. Because you want things to be done a certain way, the other person can't do that. And therefore, it's creating these painful feelings in the mind. And then we might get to a point in our relationship where we say, I'm no longer in love with you. And we need to end this relationship because I'm no longer in love with you. In reality, what's happened here is at the beginning of the relationship, the person was meeting your expectations because you had very few expectations, very minimal. But then as the relationship continued and your expectations grew, they weren't meeting those expectations. Maybe arguments, disagreements, struggles happened throughout the relationship. And it became such a struggle where the two people are pulling against each other and pulling in opposite directions. There's so much difficulties in the relationship that eventually either one party or both parties become disinterested in the relationship. It's such a struggle. And we say, I no longer love you. And now I need to end the relationship. But that wasn't the love. I'm sure there was love in there, but that wasn't the love. That was the craving desire attachment. That's this selfishness in the mind where we say, as long as you're meeting my conditions, I will love you. And I love you as long as you're doing all these things that I want you to do. But as soon as you're not meeting my expectations, I don't love you anymore. Right? That's not actually love. That's craving, desire, attachment. Masquerading is love. The unenlightened mind thinks that that is love, but in reality, it's actually craving, desire, attachment. Where craving, desire, attachment or conditional love, what we say there in the unenlightened state is we say, I love you. Therefore, I want you to be with me and I want you to make me happy. And when you're with me, I feel fulfilled. 
and therefore I want you to be with me. What unconditional love is, is I love you, therefore I would like to see you be well. I would like to see you be peaceful, right? What this craving, desire, attachment masquerading as love is, is I want something from you. I want you to do these things. I have these expectations of you. And as long as you're meeting these expectations, I will love you. And I will say that I love you. And I will do things to kind of confirm that I love you. But when you stop doing those things, I won't love you anymore. That's not actually love. That's conditional expectations based on craving, desire, attachment. Where true love is, is true love is, I love you no matter what. I don't fall in love with you and I don't fall out of love with you. What true love is, is I'm just interested in seeing you be well and seeing you be peaceful. And I'm just going to kind of encourage this relationship. I'm going to support this relationship. I'm going to support you in this relationship in order to have us live this peaceful life together. Now, of course, there are certain things in a relationship that we need, right? There's need versus wants and expectations. We need politeness, kindness, friendliness, respectfulness. If those basic needs aren't there, then there's no chance that this relationship is going to actually work. If somebody is impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, you're probably not even going to have a first, second, third date, right? So these basic needs of politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness, those are just basic needs, the foundation of any good, healthy relationship. But once that's there, and that's probably the only reason why you're even interested in being around this person to begin with, because those things are there, what we tend to do in the unenlightened state is then we start growing these expectations and we start attempting to get this other person to fulfill our desires, the objects of our affection. We want them to be a certain way and do things a certain way rather than just giving them the ability to make their own free will choices. Whether this is a life partner, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent or caregiver, whether it's a sibling, a friend or a coworker, what we tend to do in the unenlightened state is we cast our expectations onto other people, expecting them to be a certain way. And when they are that way, we experience pleasant feelings and we like that. But when they aren't that way, then we experience painful feelings. Well, the problem isn't that they aren't doing things our way. The problem is, is that we're expecting them to do things our way rather than let them just exercise their own free will and just love them as they are. Just love people as they are without trying to change or fix them because everybody is responsible for their own growth. As a life partner, you might suggest things to your partner. You might provide ideas or thoughts or suggestions. But as soon as you allow that to come to an expectation or something that you want or something that you're longing for them to do, that's where you're setting yourself up to fail and you're going to sabotage this relationship and crush it because you're wanting them to fulfill the objects of your affection 
rather than hold something really tightly and crush it because we put expectations on the relationship, a better approach is just to allow the relationship to breathe and let everybody do things based on their own free will and make their own personal choices and just love them as they are. And of course, two people living together in a life, they're going to support each other and encourage each other and help each other along in life. But it's when we put these expectations on each other that then we're pulling in opposite directions and we can't both get what we want. And then that's where conflict comes in. One person wants one thing. Another person wants another thing. They both want it really, really badly. They're holding on to it. They have the objects of their affection. And now there's a conflict because one person wants one thing and one person wants something else. Where when you can just let go and exist peacefully and realize that your goal isn't to always get your way, but your goal is to live harmoniously with all people. Then when you work to live harmoniously with all people, if we see movie A or we see movie B, it doesn't matter to me because my only interest is to spend time with you. And if you're really interested in movie A, okay, you can watch movie A because my only interest is to spend time with you. Or you would like to go to that restaurant, okay, that's fine with me because my only interest is to live harmoniously with you. Now you can suggest other things, surely. You can suggest and recommend, but if somebody else is holding on to their wants and desires really strongly, and you're holding on to yours really strongly, that's where conflict ensues. And because you're walking this path to enlightenment, and maybe your partner isn't, you're gonna have to be the one that's probably more flexible in the relationship. and not be interested in always getting your way necessarily and look at how by letting go you can actually eliminate this conflict and of course there's a lot of details here to really dive into this and fully explore it and fully understand it so let me pause and see if you guys have any questions at this point about what is true love or how to practice true love and maybe even talking about some examples from your lives to help you understand how to practice this a bit better. So remember to ask questions, you just put your comments into the Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. I was wondering, David, would an enlightened person feel love in various degrees for different people? For instance, would they feel more love for a spouse or a child than they would a stranger or is this in violation of equanimity in some way yeah an enlightened person is going to feel love for all beings equally now there are certain responsibilities that an enlightened being is going to need to fulfill with a spouse or a child versus a stranger for example so where with a stranger maybe you love that person you would like to see them be well you would like to see them be peaceful but if a stranger called you up on the phone and said hey i'm sick i need your help right now it's like well who are you i don't know who you are i've never met you before whereas if your spouse or your child called you up and was sick you know and you needed to take them to the hospital of course there's a certain responsibility that you have there in order to help this person and there are some situations where even a stranger, you would still help them. But 
the love itself, the interest to see all beings be well is going to be the same, but the level of activity, the level of responsibility, the level of things that you do with people who are close to you are going to be different than someone who is maybe a friend or a coworker or something like that. Thank you, David. We have a question from Miranda now, so I'm going to unmute her. Sure. Hi. Um, so I guess my question is, what about the expectations of a partner who is not on the path? Should we try to meet them to increase peacefulness and you know keep conflict out of the relationship? Um, or while remaining polite, kind, and respectful, be aware of those expectations, but not always strive to meet those expectations? Yeah, this is the challenge because there's a real big gray area here, right? You're not going to be able to meet all your partner's expectations. It's just not possible because they've got endless expectations and their list is going to just keep growing. So if you just fulfilled their expectations all the time, then their list is just going to keep growing and you're essentially inheriting their craving, desire, attachments. And that's going to make you feel really uncomfortable in the relationship if you attempted to fulfill all their expectations and their expectations are going to just keep growing. But on the other side, if you didn't do anything that they're expecting, then that's going to cause problems as well. So you've got to find that real sweet spot. And part of being a partner, part of being a life partner is even though they haven't chosen to be on the path is you can actually help them realize some of these teachings without them actually being on the path, help them see how some of the things that they've got in their mind are truly their own expectations and you're not going to be able to fulfill them. So this is where the conversations and discussions need to happen and being a good partner who you've decided to be part of this path to enlightenment and maybe your partner's not, that doesn't mean that you don't share things with them. You don't have to even use the word Buddha or the Four Noble Truths or any of these other things you can actually help people skillfully see how what they're expecting from you is an unrealistic expectation and you're not going to be able to meet that all the time. And that comes with understanding the person and kind of navigating the relationship and having opportunities to talk with them. And without a specific example, I wouldn't be able to give you specific feedback of exactly how to do that in any one particular situation because each situation is different. But there needs to be some mutual understanding that your partner can understand to a certain level of degree that you're not going to be able to meet their expectations all the time. And that comes with just you skillfully having some conversations with them at different times to kind of help them see some of this for themselves, even if they're choosing not to be on the path. Okay. Thank you, David. You're welcome. And we can talk about this when we have our personal discussion, Miranda, if you have some kind of private examples that you would like to talk about, we can kind of bring this into more applying it to your situation in your life. Okay. I believe Manal has a follow-up now, David, so let's get to Manal. Sure. Yes. Hi, teacher David. So I was um, wanting to listen to maybe the entirety of our class today before I asked uh, the um, question that's on my mind, but since Miranda brought up um, a really great question related to 
our partners and expectations uh, which they might have, um, I've, I've felt prompted to kind of ask right now. Um, there's, um, you know, the story of Gautama Buddha, of how he uh, left his uh, kingdom and uh, left in the night um, and basically a, a wife and a child. And then he pursued his own life for his own purpose and for the purpose of, um, you know, countless others uh, where we are today. Uh, I, I see that there's, there's a choice that uh, someone in his position might have had to make. Um, in current times, though, when you are in a relationship and when you are pursuing as a household practitioner uh, with a life partner, um, they, I mean, I'm, I uh, am in a place where I don't want to offend or, you know, a partner doesn't want to offend uh, the other partner in decision making and, uh, and uh, what comes to mind is kind of making sure that I follow the middle path and uh, make decisions skillfully with my partner in mind with a lot of love and care but just the idea of um, pursuing my own path but being compassionate to understand that I don't want to cause harm to my partner because of the decisions that I eventually have to make um, how do you reconcile, um, you know, the idea of how this influences your partner who may not be a, a practitioner? This is where conversations are really important. The same thing that I shared with Miranda is that having conversations and helping your partner to see different aspects of the path is really important. You know, in my situation, my wife is on the path. She has been Buddhist her whole life, being Thai. But even with that, there were certain things that she didn't understand about the path that we needed to sit down and talk about and discuss. So it's not like just because both people are on the path that everything's just going to be perfect. Both people being on the path, they're having different experiences and they might be exposed to different teachings. Their level of understanding of the path might be at different levels. So there are multiple times where my wife and I had to sit down and talk or, or not even just sit down, just little five minute conversations in the car here or there or one or two minutes here or there, explaining and helping her to see what is true love. Because she had a lot of challenges with true love and understanding how to love without attachment. So I needed to help her see that. And that is what I was able to contribute to our relationship and to her, and to her growth on the path. So you guys are going to need to do that as well as part of your relationship with your partners. The more you understand all of these teachings, you'll be able to have conversations, even just two minutes, three minutes here and there. Or if you have a longer conversation where it's really a sit down conversation to discuss what is love you guys need to come to a mutual understanding because as long as you're looking at love in one way and your partner's looking at love another way, there's going to continue to be conflict in the relationship where you're practicing non-attachment and they come home and they say, oh, honey, I missed you so much. And you just smile and say, oh, I love you. I'm, I'm pleased that you're here. If they're expecting to hear you say, oh, I missed you too, 
But in reality, you didn't miss them because you don't have attachment to them. If their expectation is that you should say, you missed me too, and they don't hear those words, they don't get those pleasant feelings, then they're going to feel like they're missing something or losing something. So they're going to need to being a partner of yours. What being a partner means is that you're both contributing to each other's life in beneficial ways. So just like you're on this path and you're learning all these teachings, you should feel comfortable sharing that with them and helping them see what you're understanding because that's going to help them in their life, but it's also going to help them be a better partner because they're going to understand you more. The obligation and the responsibility of being a partner isn't just on one person, it's on both people. And we need to, as partners, understand each other. And you engaging your partner in conversations to help them understand what true love is as you understand it more is going to be beneficial to you. It's going to be beneficial to your partner. If there's any children involved or elderly parents or anybody else, it's going to be very helpful that in the household that both parties are practicing true love. Otherwise, there's going to be continued conflict in the relationship. And one thing I'd like to add to Manal, since you started out talking about Gautama Buddha's life, is while he left in the middle of the night and went out on this journey for six years, he did return to the kingdom and his son ended up becoming ordained with him. He was the very first novice monk, or they're not really a monk when they're a novice, but he was the first one who, who ordained as a novice. And his wife also ordained his stepmother, who was his aunt, essentially, she ordained because his real mom died. Many of his cousins also ordained to the point where his father actually came to him and pleaded and begged with him because all the family was leaving the royal family and the father was concerned that the royal family was going to fall down and disintegrate because everyone was leaving to come join him. So he was still around his son quite frequently and around his wife and his stepmother and cousins so i'm sure he understood how to practice true love without attachment the answer to awakening the mind to enlightenment isn't that we leave all our relationships and we go out on this homeless journey and we're by ourselves. even though that's the perception that most people have about what the buddha did and he did leave the royal family but he was still surrounded by family members. He was still surrounded by students. He was still surrounded by other people that his mind wasn't attached to, but could have if he didn't understand craving, desire, attachment, and he didn't understand true love. Mm -hmm. So an enlightened being is going to understand how to practice true love and ensure that their mind doesn't latch on to this other person wanting to fulfill the objects of its affection based on the other person. Ideally, what would happen in relationships is there would be two parties who are interested in being together with each other, and they would enter into the relationship already being fulfilled. And they both understand that it's not this relationship that's going to make them whole and make them fulfilled. That would be ideal, but it very rarely happens in the world. Oftentimes what happens is we want Prince Charming or Princess Charming, and we have all this perfect imagery of what the perfect partner should be. And we cast all of this perfectness onto our partner. 
and we expect that they're going to fulfill those obligations and that's what's going to make us happy and we think that that's what's going to make us fulfilled that we cast this perfect image of what we want out of a partner onto this other person well at the beginning of the relationship that's what the mind's doing but six months a year into it we realize that this person is really just another being who's struggling through life just like we are and this other person isn't prince charming or isn't princess charming and they've got some real challenges going on in their life too and when we meet with these challenges and these struggles and these difficulties this is where the mind can become very discontent because we expect things to be perfect and that perfection that permanence that the mind's craving the mind oftentimes becomes discontent when the relationship isn't perfect. What we have to realize is when two people come together as life partners, they're both still struggling through life. They're still stuck in the cycle of rebirth. They're still experiencing discontentedness. And the best thing that we can really actually do as partners is come together, support each other, encourage each other, motivate each other, learn about each other, and help each other through life as we learn various wisdom and moral conduct and mental discipline and share this with each other to enhance our relationship, not as a way that we expect them to practice it or we expect them to learn it, but as a way of supporting and encouraging and creating harmony in our relationship, sharing these wisdom of the Buddha as a way to help this relationship continue to flourish and prosper and not expecting this other being to be perfect and when we remove that when we remove the expectation of perfection of our partner because we're not perfect when we enter into a relationship so why should we expect them to be perfect when we remove that and we realize that there's two imperfect beings that are living together well then at that point it just becomes well how do we support each other how do we encourage each other how do we help each other through this life so that we can continue to have this genuine interest in seeing each other be well and this genuine interest in seeing each other be peaceful and then just figure out how to share the wisdom and share the other aspects of life that allow us to do that and that's going to require a lot of conversations and a lot of discussions that oftentimes we get so busy in our life that we don't do especially if a relationship's kind of like beyond two or three years old we oftentimes kind of die out and we kind of like well i guess i'm with this person now right and we kind of lose the interest we lose the energy we lose the activity of realizing that we need to be active in this relationship five years 10 years 15 years into it we need to be active involved in conversations to ensure that we're enhancing each other's life and we're not trying to control each other's life. Okay, and really quickly, just going back to the example of the Buddha, would you agree that um, with his departure from his family and returning after six years, still doesn't dismiss the fact that his wife and child would have uh, been better supported if they woke up the next day and had seen the Buddha there and maybe um, you know the fact that he abruptly left uh, would have caused harm to wife and child so mm -hmm. he, he returning and fulfilling a lot of um, 
responsible um, acts uh, after the fact, uh, which is um, which is very con- uh, commendable and very um, beneficial for his family members to have further their path towards enlightenment after the Buddha reached enlightenment. However, I'm still um, at that point, um, I suppose, where you know that heartache that someone would experience from their partner um, sort of choosing a path of their own. And then, as you say, in a relationship, ideally, two, two people would have already sort of understood their um, direction and path in life. But if have that, that not, never happened, and that's a progression in their life, and suddenly one partner, um, you know, decided that something was more better for them, then there is heartache on the other side. Okay, so let's talk about that. So he wasn't yet the Buddha yet, but Siddhartha Gautama left the palace and he left his wife and his child in the royal palace. And he left from what we know in the middle of the night without them being aware. With his son and his wife waking up the next day and realizing that he was gone, if they experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, who caused that? Or what caused that? Their own expectations and craving towards what they um, believed for themselves. Right. So Siddhartha Gautama didn't cause the sadness, anger, frustration, right? It was that his wife, we don't know that she was, but I have a feeling she probably was, but she caused it herself because of her own craving, desire, attachment. From what I know, his child was an infant at the time, so his child probably didn't know the difference. But if she experienced any anger, frustration, or sadness, or loneliness, she's causing it herself. So I don't agree that the Buddha caused harm. He wasn't the Buddha yet, but I don't agree that he caused harm by leaving. If there is any discontentedness in his wife's mind, she caused that herself. Him leaving, that was just the impermanent condition that his wife's mind latched onto. Once he was able to train his mind for those six years and then ultimately come back, then he was able to share the teachings with them to allow them to liberate their mind. Had he stayed in that palace with his family and never gone and done what he did, his family would have still been in misery. They would have still been in discontentedness. So that departing for six years, which he didn't cause the anger or sadness, that departing for six years ultimately is what led to their liberation if they attained enlightenment during their life. So I cannot agree that he caused harm by leaving. I look at it as that was the absolute most loving and compassionate thing he could have done is go out on his own for six years, fixed his own mind, and then came back with the ability to help others fix their mind as well. It's kind of like this. Say like you and your husband were living together and say you were having horrible, horrible experiences and discontentedness and the whole family was discontent. Would you rather have your husband stay in that situation and just continue that all of you guys kind of suffer in that misery? Or if he left for a period of time, fixed his own mind, figured out how to do that on his own and he needed to do that on his own and then actually came back and helped you and all of your other family members 
eliminate discontentedness, isn't that better than having stayed there and just stayed in the misery? I do understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, In the long-term sort of perspective of things, uh, perhaps I'm attached to uh, being a wife and being um, a female and fulfilling a role um, and understanding the roles of uh, you know, people in my family in the past uh, generations, and uh, I'm uh, clearly I'm attached to the sentiment behind uh, you know being a wife and uh, having hope for a relationship to be thriving and happy and um, meeting the needs um, and not having a spouse leave abruptly. So, um, you know, I've, I, I'll sit on uh, your interpretation, and then if I have further questions, I'll let you know. Yeah, the story is that the reason why he left in the middle of the night and left abruptly is because he knew his own mind, and had he kissed his wife, hugged his wife, held his child one more time, he felt like the pull would have been too heavy that he wouldn't have ever actually left. So that's why it's said that he chose to leave in the middle of the night because he realized, even though he didn't understand these teachings to the way that he did once he fully became enlightened, he at least understood enough at that moment that had he kissed her goodbye, had he hugged her, had he held his child, had he discussed it with her, his mind would have pulled and been unable to let go and to leave so the only way that he saw he would be able to do this is if he did leave in the middle of the night and think about it he left her in a royal palace right he didn't leave her without money or food or anything he left her in a royal palace you know like so it's not like this guy that's just walking out on his responsibility and left his family in a condition where they couldn't eat they didn't have shelter i mean they had servants they had food they had entertainment they had luxurious fabric so it's not like he abandoned his family right so maybe think about that as you're reflecting on this thank you so david it seems that this is a common question in the west because in the west we are often surrounded by people who aren't practicing would you say that this is in some way just an indicator of our discontent mind however because even if everyone around us was practicing and we have a discontent mind, we're still going to find objects for that. So would you say that that's true, that in some sense this is very present for us because the people around us are with us all the time? But in some sense, if it wasn't this, it would be something else, essentially. That's true. That's very true. If it wasn't your partner that you're attached to, it's going to be your car or your house or your clothes or your jewelry or your money or your job or your mom or your dad. There's always going to be some craving, desire, attachment there until you train the mind to let go of them. So in some cases, the way to let go of an attachment is to separate, right? Like that was one of the ways that who ultimately became the Buddha by him leaving for six years, I'm sure the first several months of him leaving was probably very difficult and challenging for him because he still had some craving, desire, attachment there. But sometimes one of the ways to let it go is to actually separate. This is what I talked about, why parents cry when their children go away to college or when they get married, right? Parents cry and they feel sad. Well, shouldn't they be joyful that their child has moved on to college and they're moving on to get married. And this is kind of like the 
result of being a very good parent is that your child doesn't need you anymore, that you've given them what they need and they can now move on with their life. And that's what you would see clearly. But because the unenlightened mind doesn't see it that way, the unenlightened mind craves permanence. When the child goes away to college, there's a lot of sadness sometimes and heartache. Or when the child gets married, there's a lot of crying at weddings because of the craving desire attachment. And through training the mind to understand this, you can then practice in such a way to let this go. So what would be really wise for a young couple is to spend time apart, is to get used to being away. And I know Miranda's life, her and her fiance tend to be away from each other for weeks or two weeks. And that's actually really helpful and very beneficial, very healthy for a relationship to spend time apart. But while you're apart, you have to work on the mind to not miss them or not feel lonely or not feel bored, is to realize that your whole life isn't this other partner. That yes, you guys come together and you have a certain life together, but when you're apart, you're not any less of a person. You're not unwhole because your partner is off working or the same thing with children it'd be really wise for a family who has children to have their children go stay with other people either grandparents or brothers and sisters or their friends do sleepovers and stuff like that to train the parents mind and to train the child's mind that it's okay to be separated and being together is impermanent and we're not always going to be together but also when we're separate, that's not permanent either. We can come back together. This is why children, when they go off to pre-K and kindergarten, they cry, right? When the, the kids go to school for the first time, the parents and sometimes even the children will cry because mom or dad is at home taking care of the children. And then a few years into the child growing up, they eventually need to go to school. And children will cry and cry and cry. and parents will sometimes cry too. It's because of that attachment. But after a few weeks of going to school and coming back and going to school and coming back, eventually the mind stabilizes in the parents and the child and they start realizing like, hey, this is impermanent. They see it and they get comfortable with it, but they still don't understand impermanence and they haven't trained the mind to fully let go. It's only let go enough that they're comfortable when they go to school and come home but the mind is still holding on. So what you sometimes have to do to actively train the mind is just like the example I gave with the mobile phone, that when I noticed at one point that my mind was attached to the mobile phone and it created fear, I purposefully left the mobile phone at home several times to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without the mobile phone or with it. You have to do the same thing with your relationships, is that you have to have a life outside of this relationship. Sometimes what we do is we get so engrossed into a relationship that that becomes our whole life. And that is our only life. But through having this separation where you go off for a few weeks or a few days or a few hours or some couples even a few months and they go away from each other, and they have a relationship. They don't have to talk to each other every single day and find out what's going on in each other's life. That's important that when you're away that, that you don't talk to each other every single day because that trains the mind to let go. And you recognize that, okay, they're away for two weeks or they're away for a month. 
and this is impermanent and then eventually we'll be back together and when you're together you enjoy that time together but you always know that that time together is impermanent there's going to come a time where you guys are not going to be together again and if you train the mind this way to recognize that and accept that and to understand that then when you're together or you're apart the mind isn't going to feel these discontentedness because you've trained the mind to let go that you're not trying to control this individual and you have another life outside of this relationship that this relationship isn't your whole life speaking of impermanence david it seems that oftentimes people in relationships have this expectation that the relationship is always going to be peaceful and always going to be happy but of course most relationships are two people who are unenlightened and that's naturally going to lead to conflict and do you think it can be helpful to just acknowledge that this isn't always permanently going to be happy and peaceful that there are going to be ebbs and flows yes seeing that impermanence in your relationship and knowing that there's going to be challenges right oftentimes when there's a conflict we look at it in the unrelated state that there's a problem and now because there's a disagreement the mind is craving that agreement the mind's craving that permanent peacefulness in the relationship and just because there's a disagreement the mind is pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get the other person to agree with you and we feel like as a couple we have to both agree with each other on everything and that's part of the problem in a relationship is that no you don't have to agree on everything you can actually have two different opinions as two individual people and even though you have two different opinions in how things are going to happen you can essentially agree to disagree one of the challenges in the world today is people don't know how to disagree with each other politely kindly friendly and respectfully we feel like if someone disagrees with us the mind is craving permanence and permanent ag agreement that as soon as someone disagrees with us the mind gets angry or irritated or frustrated like i don't know how manal would feel like if i said yeah i don't agree with you that this with the buddha and and manal says to me well i don't agree with you either you know i i feel like the buddha who ultimately became the buddha you know should have stayed with his family that's completely comfortable that we disagree and we can still be friendly we can still be polite we can still be respectful but in a relationship if you are craving for each other to agree with each other and you're wanting that all the time then you might look at disagreement as a problem rather than just looking at it for what it was which is it's just impermanence you're not going to permanently agree with each other on everything and there's going to be challenges in the relationship and rather than look at these as problems look at them as challenges and we just need to sit down and talk this out and don't expect that one conversation is going to solve everything it's going to require multiple conversations and at the end of those conversations you guys might walk away and just disagree and that's completely fine and be comfortable with people disagreeing with each other and that's okay and don't feel like just because this person's disagreeing that now i have to be angry and aggressive to get them to agree 
because this is animalistic behavior, right? If there's two animals and one animal is laying down and the other animal wants to lay down in that same spot, they're going to fight over that and they're going to be hostile because they both want something different. Well, human beings, we don't have to act that way. We can actually disagree respectfully and just listen, understand the other person's opinion, understand their view, and then politely let them know that you disagree. And that disagreement might be there for many months or many years until one of you have a different opinion. And there's going to be certain things that you disagree on as a couple. But you might agree that we're going to do it this way for now. But ultimately, there are disagreements that are going to exist in a relationship. And that's just part of the impermanence of the relationship. I had another question, David, about romantic love. It seems that oftentimes this romantic love is born of craving of some sort of another. And I was wondering if for an enlightened person, what would incentivize or draw an enlightened person into a romantic relationship? Is there anything that would do that? Depends on what you mean by romantic relationship. Do you have a definition for what a romantic relationship is? I suppose it would simply be a relationship between two individuals, such as a spouse or something of that nature. Okay. So when I think romantic relationship, I think of passion. I think of sex. I think of, you know, wanting something from this person out of the relationship. But there's different degrees of romanticism, right? So it really depends how you define what is romantic. Is bringing your partner a flower, is that romantic? What you've got to look at is, you know, what's the purpose of this, right? When you're in a relationship that is practicing true love, if you're bringing your partner a flower, for example, you're just giving them a flower because you're interested in giving them a flower. That's it. You're just interested in them being well and being peaceful. If there's conditional love, which isn't really love, it's craving, desire, attachment, I'm bringing my partner a flower because I'm hoping that tonight it helps them to get in the mood, right? That's the condition. That's like, there's not true generosity there. That's not true love. Now there's love in there, I'm sure, but that's where it's getting tainted and corrupted and polluted with this craving, desire, attachment, that here I'm gonna give this gift, but my real intention behind it is that I want something from them, right? And that's where people have trouble seeing the, the true love on the other side. They have trouble seeing that true love because there's something that you want. There's nothing wrong with things like having sex, for example. An enlightened being wouldn't be having sex. Uh, someone in the third stage of enlightenment wouldn't be having sex. But the first and second stage of enlightenment, you can maintain a healthy sex life and really have a significantly decreased amount of discontentedness. You're still going to experience a small amount of discontentedness in those stages of enlightenment. And then when and if you're ready and your partner is okay as well, and you decide to move to the third and fourth stage of enlightenment, you can choose to let go of sex, which is oftentimes part of a romantic relationship. But when you're doing things with your partner, whether it's giving gifts, whether it's saying kind things, whether it's taking out the trash, whether it's washing the dishes, whether it's 
anything that you're doing, you have to always come from a place of, I'm just doing this because I'm interested in seeing this person be well and be peaceful. And I'm interested in cohabitating together in a harmonious way. And if you can do that in a relationship, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a gift, whether it's anything that you're doing with your partner and your only intention behind it is I'm just interested in seeing this person be well and be peaceful, then that's true love. As soon as you allow anything that you want out of it, then that's going to pollute your interactions and then it's going to be difficult for the other person to see your true love. And if you don't get what you want, then you're going to feel painful feelings as a result. I understand. So it seems that oftentimes in relationships, we want our partner to be other than they are. We want to change them. And in essence, though, the a true love relationship is what's on the slide. It's conducted with no other intentions or interest other than to see the person succeed in life. And would you say that's essentially the that's what true love is and that is like a true love relationship and it's not changing the other person in any way it's not intending to transform them it is simply supporting them exactly you got it 100 percent right james and when you come together with this partner you guys are both imperfect beings you both are unenlightened and you need to just love them as they are you're not trying to control them you're not trying to change them but At the same time, you're interested in contributing to their life. So if you see that they're struggling with something or they're having a challenge with something, you can contribute to their life and you can help them if they're open to it. But you don't have the expectation that they're going to listen and follow your advice. As soon as you allow that expectation and that want that they've got to follow what I say, now you're trying to control them and it's your craving, desire, attachment, wanting them to do what you say that's going to cause the discontentedness because they're not going to always do what you say. So you can contribute to your partner's life without wanting to change them. So like all things, it's the craving that really creates issues here. Yes, exactly. Like, for example, uh, I'll just bring this one up with my wife. Two and a half years ago, I decided to start eating plant-based food. And as I was doing that, I was kind of processing all of that and looking at all of that. And we would sit down at dinner together or lunch, and I would notice she was eating meat and I wasn't. And I was just interested in talking about vegetarianism and veganism. I wasn't trying to change her. And I was just kind of talking about it and discussing it. And this was just something that was on my mind because I was processing it. And ultimately what's happened is because she's been around me, of course, for those two and a half years of me switching over to vegan food, it's influenced her. She eats very, very little meat anymore, but that was all her choice. I didn't force that upon her. I didn't try to control her to do that. If I'm outside and I call her up and I say, hey, uh, I'm at the market, would you like some food? And she's like, hey, can you get me some pork or get me some chicken? Sure, I'll get it for her, right? It's her choice. That's what she's asking for, that's her choice here you go. Here's your pork. Here's your chicken. I haven't done anything that's harmful to me. I'm actually doing something helpful because I'm showing generosity and I'm helping her get food. And she does the same thing for me. When she's out, she will buy me food oftentimes and bring it home. 
But if my mind was trying to control her and I had the expectation that just because I've decided to be vegan, she has to be vegan and she has to do it on my time frame when and how I want to do it. And if I kind of looked at it as disgusting that she still eats meat, then this is going to cause conflict. Because when she asked me to bring her food, I'm like, what? Are you serious? Pork, chicken, you're going to eat that stuff? Do you know how harmful that is for your body? Like she's on the path. It's her own choices. So if I have craving, desire, attachment for her to be vegan, then when she asks for meat, it's going to produce unskillful speech. But because I don't have a craving for her to be vegan, when she says to me, hey, can you pick me up this or pick me up that? Sure, I can do that for you. No problem. So what I'm doing with my wife is I'm contributing to her life and she's contributing to my life through the things that we share together and that we talk about. But neither one of us at this point in our relationship are trying to control each other and force each other to do one thing or another. That wasn't always the case. You know, that wasn't always the case. I heard a a judge recently on TV he said, you know, I've been married for 50 years, but I've been happily married for five years, right? So I've been with my wife for 14 years, but we've been peaceful together for probably the last two or three, right? It took us a while to figure this out. And that's part of being a partner is figuring it out together, is that we didn't have all the answers when we first came together as a couple. But through both of us working through our own practice, we eventually arrived at the answers and discovered how to live with each other peacefully based on the Buddhist teachings. And once we started learning and practicing these teachings closely, both of us, everything became completely peaceful. We never argue, we never fight, we never are angry at each other, we're never frustrated, we're never irritated, we're never sad, we're never lonely, we never miss each other, none of that stuff. But we had to work towards that as a couple. We had to figure that out. It didn't just happen just because we happened to be both on the path because we were at different points in our learning. We had to help each other through contributing to each other's life without expectations and wanting each other to be at a certain place at a certain time. We often seem to conceptualize couples as one entity, but it seems like it's helpful to simply acknowledge that a couple is two individuals on their own path essentially yeah i think that's really dangerous in our culture that we are taught that once you're married you're one person because that kind of builds in the expectation or the assumption that we're one person and we should agree on everything and we should do everything exactly the same which is the whole problem right if we're trying to force each other to conform to permanence that's going to cause a lot of problems I think it's really helpful to recognize that you're two separate individuals with completely different minds, completely different experiences through this life. And now you're together and through those completely different experiences, you're contributing to each other's life and helping each other, wishing each other well, being interested in seeing each other be peaceful and making decisions along the way to ensure that each other can continue to just make their own decisions without putting expectations on each other. As soon as you try to put expectations on each other, that's where the struggles and difficulties happen. You've got to let each other grow on their own and then just contribute to each other. 
because the person that you are when you met your wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend is a different person than you are now. And the person that they were when you met them are different than they are now. But if your mind craves for them to be that exact same person when you first met them, that's where you can fall out of love with somebody because you fell in love with them based on these conditions. And now five years, 10 years down the road, they're no longer that person anymore. They've changed. But if your mind is holding on to these conditions, that that's what you think you fell in love with. But in reality, that's your own craving, desire, attachment. Now, when they've changed because of impermanence, now you say, I don't love you anymore, right? If you met this person when they were young and youthful and had this beautiful, amazing appearance, and that's what it is that you say you loved about them, but in reality, it's the craving, desire, attachment. You're not comfortable with this 10 or 15 years of impermanence of now this person is looking older, or they maybe have had a child and their their body isn't as shapely as they were before. Now you're going to say, you know what? I don't love this person anymore. I need to go get a new one, right? Because what I really crave and desire is youthful appearance. But if you get rid of that craving and desiring and you just realize the real goal is to see this person be well and live in harmony and peace with this individual and contribute to each other's life as you walk forward in life together, now you can meet any kind of challenges together as a couple, because you're not holding on to all these conditions of the way they were when you first met them. You're understanding that they're gonna change and evolve. And as they change and evolve and they grow as a person, be comfortable with that and accept that. And then as you grow and change and evolve as a person, help them be comfortable with that too, that you guys are gonna both change and evolve. And that's okay and that's actually beneficial. That's the best thing that a couple can really do is is allow for each other's growth and evolution as you move through life together, contributing to each other's life together. Thank you, David. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Let's turn it over to Basim now for our Zen questions. Thanks, James. Uh, we have a question from Maestasio. He asks, is true love also in the mind? True love is a practice much like loving kindness. So if you remember loving kindness that we talked about last week, loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well without judgment, right? Having this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. That's essentially what true love is, is it's practicing loving kindness without judgment, where you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and that you're not obligating or expecting or wanting things to be a certain way or trying to obligate or force or expect somebody to be a certain way. And if they're this way, I love them. If they're not that way, I don't love them. That's not actually love. That's craving, desire, attachment. What true love is, is I'm just interested in seeing this being be well and I don't have any conditions that they have to meet that I can love them just because they're a being and I have no conditions for the love that I share because the love is a genuine interest in just seeing them be well. And if somebody murdered my son, I can say that I love the murderer. I disagree with their intentions, their speech and their actions. 
I disagree with what they did, but I still have a genuine interest in seeing this being be well. Because obviously, if they murdered somebody, they're not well. They're lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. But I can still have this genuine interest in seeing them be well and be peaceful, right? I can disagree with their intentions, their speech, and their actions. But they can't do anything to make me stop loving them because there is no condition that they did in order to make me start loving them. If there's no conditions to make you start loving somebody, then there's no conditions or nothing they can do to make you stop loving them. When you have pure love or this true love where you just have a genuine interest in seeing others be well, then there's nothing that you have to do in order to allow me to feel that way. I can feel that way for every single being in the world that I would like to see all beings be well. Okay, thanks, Hitcher. Uh, no more questions for now. Okay, let's talk about loving oneself. Now, I use this because there's really no other way to refer to it. If you guys have been in this program for any length of time, then you understand the third universal truth is the universal truth of non-self. So there is no self there is no permanent self, but that's a whole nother thing. What we're talking about here when I say love oneself is talking about loving this being, this being right here that we refer to as David. We need to love this being as well. And we need to love this being and have true love for this being, just like we have for other beings. Because if we don't practice true love with our own self, then it's going to cause challenges. And what happens is we oftentimes put expectations and obligations on our own self. And when we don't meet those expectations, then there's this negative self-talk that we have. So we need to eliminate these wants, expectations, and obligations, and instead practice true love where we're working towards goals, we're working towards objectives, we're pursuing certain things in this life, but we're not expecting it. This is where if you've started learning the Buddhist teachings and you learn about the five factors of well-spoken speech and then you expect that you're going to get it perfect, then when you mess up, you start talking to yourself negatively. Like, you're no good. You know, why did I do this? I can't do this well. And that negative self-talk degrades your perspective of yourself, of this being. So in order to practice true love with others, you need to be able to practice true love with yourself too, of not putting these wants, these desires, these expectations and obligations on yourself. Because when you can clear that up and you can start having a loving relationship with yourself, then you can more readily understand and see how to have a loving relationship with other people. And you'll be able to choose a partner who is also interested in practicing true love. If you're in a relationship now or you're getting involved in a relationship and this person has tons of expectations for you, that's going to have to be calmed down and understood and eradicated because all their expectations are going to sabotage and crush this relationship. So the way that you can see very clearly what other people's expectations and them putting that on you is by having this loving relationship with yourself 
and eradicating those obligations and expectations so that you can have this positive, loving relationship with yourself so that then you can have that with other people as well. For people like your parents or your caregivers. Oftentimes we grow up with parents or caregivers and we have a very turbulent relationship. We have a very difficult relationship uh, because we put expectations or obligations on our parents or our caregivers expecting them to be a certain way. And when they're not that way, then we feel like they don't love us or we want them to be a certain way. When they're not that way, we don't love them because they're not meeting our expectations or our obligations. The problem here is in our own mind. The problem is in our own unenlightened mind that the mind is expecting and wanting and putting obligations on other people, expecting them to be a certain way. See, I expected my mom to be a certain way when I grew up, but she wasn't capable of doing that because she didn't have the wisdom, the moral conduct, and the mental discipline to be able to do that. And as long as I had expectations and obligations, things that I wanted from her, then I'm going to constantly feel like she doesn't love me because I didn't get what I wanted. But the problem isn't that she didn't love me. The problem is, is that my mind wanted something from her. My mind had this image of what a perfect mom should be. And since she couldn't fulfill that, then that's why my mind at a certain point in life thought that my mom didn't love me. But when you move that stuff out of the way, and you get rid of your own craving, desire, attachments, expectations, wants, and obligations, and you just love this person for who they are, and you recognize who they are is just, this is my mom. This is the woman who carried me in her stomach, fed me while I was in her stomach, fed me as I grew up, changed diapers, worked really hard to provide for me, was a single mom, had government assistance, eventually worked her way up, made a little bit more money, and she raised me in the best way that she knew how, based on her wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline that she had or that she lacked. And I learned whatever I needed to learn in that experience. But as soon as you put expectations or obligations and you cast this onto your parents or caregivers, then when they're not meeting your expectations, it's going to create struggle. And you can relate this to your parents or caregivers. You can also relate this to your in-laws. If you're in a relationship with a partner and now you have two moms or two dads or grandparents or brothers or sisters, as soon as you have expectation of wanting them to be a certain way, then that's where you're going to struggle because they're not the way you want them to be. It doesn't mean that they're right or wrong for being harsh or being vindictive or having hate or anger or judgment in their mind. Sure, they might have those things, right? But that doesn't make them a bad person. It just means that they're lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Their life practice hasn't evolved to the point where maybe you are at this point. Forget about any kind of arrogance or pride, but they just haven't moved along in their journey in this life and their mind still has some pollution, some defilements, some taints, some of these fetters, and we can have compassion or concern for their misfortune rather than put our expectations and our wants, because as soon as we start trying to force other people around us 
to do things a certain way. That's our craving desire attachment. And now when they don't do it our way, you're going to be discontent. And the more you try to force and control people to do things your way, the more they're going to be uninterested in doing things your way. Think about when somebody's trying to force you to do something. If someone's trying to force you to do something, what's the first thing you do? You dig your heels in and you resist. The more somebody tries to push you to do something, you're like, nope, 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 I'm not doing that. Even if you know it's something good, if they're trying to force you to do it, you're like, nope, I'm not going to do that. So if you try to control or force another person to do things your way, the first thing they're going to do is dig their heels in and they're not going to do what you're trying to force them to do, right? You might be asking somebody to do something or suggesting somebody do something, and that can be beneficial. But if you're trying to force them or control them to do it, that's where you're going to run into problems because the natural law of gamma, the more you force, the more you control, the less interested they are going to be to do what it is that you're wanting them to do. So this is where you can contribute to people's life. You can suggest things. You can ask for things in terms of, I'm interested for you to do this, or I would like for you to do this, or it would be wonderful if we did this together. But as soon as your mind wants it or craves it or desires it or expects it, that's where you're going to run into trouble with your life partners and with your parents or caregivers, your siblings, your coworkers, your friends. The more you push, the more it's going to backfire on you. So you are most likely going to need to change your language when you talk with people. You're going to have to use words like, I would be interested in seeing us do this, or I would like to see us do this, or would it be possible for us to do something like this? Or would you be interested in doing this on this weekend, right? That word want, you almost have to eradicate it from your language, from your vocabulary. I want to go to the movies this weekend. As soon as you start using that kind of vocabulary, the mind is going to have this craving desire attachment. Or I want you to get me a gallon of milk on your way home. Or I want you to pick up eggs on the way home from work. You can say, honey, would it be possible for you to pick up some eggs on your way home from work? Or we need some eggs at home. Is it possible for you to get some eggs on your way home? And when you start using different language than what you've been currently using in the unenlightened state, you'll start seeing that you'll be able to more easily influence things and things will actually happen more easily for you. Or honey, I would like for us to spend some more time together this weekend. Is that something that's possible? Instead of, I want to spend more time together. We're not spending enough time together. We need to spend more time together. Why don't you ever spend time with me? Right? This is going to create conflict. So going back to right speech and those five factors of well-spoken speech, if you change your language and your word choice with your partner, you're going to see difference in the relationship. Because you're now coming from a place of non-craving, non-desire, non-attachment, you're going to need to eradicate the words of want or expectation out of your vocabulary so that this person feels more freedom to be able to just make their own choices. And then you guys can navigate this life together, whether it's your life partner or your parents or other people. If your life partner is on this path, 
it's going to make things a lot easier for both of you guys. But that's not always possible. That's not always going to happen. And that's why I shared with Manol and Miranda that you can actually have conversations about these teachings without ever using the word Buddhism or the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or any of these things. You can share with your partner and say, you know, this isn't the right time for me to speak. I'm a little bit angry right now. Let's talk another time. It wouldn't be beneficial for me to talk right now. Right? This is totally from the five factors of well-spoken speech, but you didn't say that. You used the other language. Or you can say, you know, I don't feel I can speak very gentle right now. Why don't we just put this conversation on hold and come back to it later? You can use this kind of language with your partner, and this is a skillful way for you to help them see your practice and how you're choosing to practice without using Buddhism or any of these other terms that we understand. If your partner is on the path and they're actively learning with you, it will make things so much better and easier for you guys, but that's not a requirement. You can still attain enlightenment with your partner not on the path. I'm confident in that. But if you're going to select a partner, if you're not yet with a life partner, it would be wise to meet somebody that you're interested in, build up a friendship, and as you do, be sure that that partner is interested in learning and practicing these teachings because you guys will end up finding your way in life together in a much better way if both of you are practicing things like the five precepts. Not killing, not stealing, not having sexual misconduct, not lying, and not having substances that cause heedlessness. Now, there's a lot of traditions that actually teach those same kind of things. So they don't necessarily have to be considered a Buddhist practitioner. They could actually be practicing those same teachings without actually calling it the five precepts or Buddhism. So as you make decisions for life partners or friends or co-workers or other relationships in your life, you should look for these same kind of qualities that the Buddha is teaching you that you know lead to good results. If there's someone in your life who you're trying to have a life partnership with and they're having sexual misconduct, you know that's going to lead to harm and it's going to challenge your relationship. Or if they're lying or they're stealing, right? This is going to cause problems. Or they're taking substances that cause heedlessness. Because you understand this for your own life, when you make choices about life partners, friends, coworkers, people to be involved with, with business, if you see some of these things that are involved, not with judgment, not with arrogance or anything like that, but with wise decision-making, it would be wise to not involve people like this in your life because if they're making those decisions for their life, your decision to be involved with them is going to result in unwholesome outcomes and unwholesome results. So a wise practitioner would ensure that the people that you choose to have in your life are practicing these teachings, but not necessarily with a need to call it Buddhism or that they're on a path to enlightenment, but that you see that they're being honest and truthful. You see that they're disinterested in being unloyal or unfaithful in your relationship. You see that they aren't interested in stealing. So they don't necessarily have to claim that they're on the path to enlightenment to actually be practicing some of these 
good wholesome teachings because they're the natural laws of existence there's things that are common amongst all people and when you talk about them as the natural laws of existence it will help you to make wise decisions towards life partners friends business colleagues and things like this any questions on any of this in terms of forming relationships and how to kind of look at relationships without judgment or arrogance but using wise decision making of who to involve in your life and who not to be involved in your life and then also related to parents or caregivers or siblings or folks like that i have one question but i think it may be best asked after our next slide and we have no other questions okay so let's go to this last slide i only had three for today because there's more talking more than kind of bullet pointing a how to build a relationship with someone. You can't really bullet point that. But one of the things I'd like to share with you guys is this teaching directly from the Buddha about parents, because in the Buddhist tradition, parents are just so utterly important. And in our culture in the West, we oftentimes have a lot of complications and struggles with our parents or our in-laws. And the Buddhist culture, you've got to remember that parents are our original teachers. They are the ones who brought us into this world. And one of the most highly valuable things to anybody is a human birth. To be born into a human birth is the absolute best thing that could ever happen to you because now you have the opportunity to attain enlightenment and you have all the abilities to do that as an animal or an afflicted spirit or other realms, it's much more challenging to attain enlightenment than it is here in the human realm. So in the human realm, this human birth is very prized and very helpful and very beneficial. So mothers and fathers are very well respected amongst Buddhist practitioners because they are the ones who gave us this human birth. And then, they're the ones who also show us the world. They're the ones who bring us up, who provide for us, who are our original teachers and show us the world. So there's always this kind of debt of gratitude and appreciation that we have for our parents. And we may not have that in the West and as part of our culture. So I'd like to share this teaching with you to help you see this debt of gratitude that the Buddha talks about that we should have for our parents but then also there are certain situations where our parents aren't practicing in a wholesome way that we can potentially help them with. And this teaching from the Buddha really helps us to see that more clearly. This is titled Repaying One's Mother and Father. He says, Monks, there are two persons that cannot easily be repaid. What two? One's mother and father. Even if one should carry about one's mother on one shoulder and one's father on the other shoulder, and while doing so, should have a lifespan of a hundred years, live for a hundred years, and if one should attend to them by anointing them with balms, by massaging, bathing, and rubbing their limbs, and they were to void their urine and excrement there, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them. Even if one were to establish one's parents as supreme lords and rulers over this great earth, 
abounding in seven treasures, one still would not have done enough for one's parents, nor would one have repaid them. For what reason? Parents are of great help to their children. They bring them up, feed them, and show them the world. But monks, if when one's parents lack confidence, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in confidence. If when one's parents are unwholesome, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. If when one's parents are selfish, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in generosity. If when one's parents are unwise, one encourages, settles, and establishes them in wisdom. In such a way, one has done enough for one's parents, repaid them, and done more than enough for them. So let's talk about this. The first part of this, the Buddha is talking about if we were to carry our mother and father on our shoulders for a hundred years, and having done so, we massage them and bathe them and rub their limbs, cleaning up their urine and their feces. And if we had done all of that for a hundred years, we still wouldn't have repaid them enough for giving us this human birth. And even beyond that, if we were to make our parents the supreme rulers or lords over the entire earth, giving them all this wealth and treasure, we still wouldn't have done enough for them to repay them for giving us this human birth. Well, why? Why is that? Because there are original teachers, is what the Buddha is saying here. Parents are of great help to their children. They bring them up. They feed them and show them the world. Because without the parents doing that, whoever our caregivers were, either our biological parents, adopted parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all of these elders around us, they brought us up, they fed us, and they showed us the world. So when we're 15, 16, 18, oftentimes in our culture, we resent our parents for some reason. That's kind of part of Western culture. Well, what the Buddha is sharing here is, no, we shouldn't have that resentment for them. We should instead have this gratitude and appreciation for them. But there are going to be those situations where our parents lack certain qualities that are going to be beneficial. And what this last paragraph the Buddha is saying is when our parents are lacking confidence, what he's saying here is lacking confidence in his teachings then one establishes, settles, and encourages them to have confidence in the Buddhist teachings. And you need to figure out a humble way to do that without craving desire attachment. When one's parents are unwholesome, maybe your parents do kill, maybe they steal, maybe they have sexual misconduct, maybe they lie, maybe they take substances that cause heedlessness, maybe they have racist ideas. Maybe they talk harshly or vindictive. Maybe they judge other people. Maybe they do very harmful things with their moral conduct. If you observe that, the Buddha is saying what you should do is try to encourage them, settle them, and establish them, essentially contribute to their life to help them see a better way and have some better moral conduct. Or when you see that your parents are selfish, then you encourage and settle and establish them in generosity. Or when you see that they're unwise, 
then you try to establish, encourage them, and settle them in wisdom. And if you've done these things, and you've tried to apply that with your parents, then the Buddha says, okay, you've done enough for them. Because at the end of the day, it's their own choice. If they choose to continue to function in that way, if they continue to lack this confidence, they lack this moral conduct, they continue to be selfish, they continue to be unwise, then that's their choice. But at least you've made some amount of effort to repay them for that debt of gratitude that we have because they brought us up, they showed us the world, they fed us, they clothed us, they did all these things for us. So as a way of returning that gamma back to them, because they took care of us and kind of helped us to sustain this life to the point where we were self-sustainable, well, the thing that we do in return is we help them where we can. And that's a really tricky and challenging thing to navigate and find that middle way, because oftentimes parents aren't interested in learning from their children, and maybe their ego doesn't allow them to do that. So you've got to find this humble way to be able to potentially share with them, but do so without craving desire and attachment. Just where you see it's possible, where you see there's an open door, where you see you might be able to share 15 seconds of wisdom or a minute or two of wisdom from the Buddha, you just share that little bit of wisdom with them that can just help them that little bit. Just like they did when you were a child helping you, you might have to kind of help them a bit now that they're getting older in age. And this is part of what you'll see here in Asia and in Buddhist communities. We don't have senior citizen homes in massive amounts here. We don't have an elderly community that is disrespected. Instead, the elders here are very well respected and very well taken care of. And because of that, the wisdom from the elders gets shared with the younger generation. And then when we treat our parents respectfully and politely, my son sees that. And when he grows up, he's learned how to treat elders respectfully through me and my wife. And then when we get older, he's going to treat us that same way. But if you treat your parents in a unwholesome way or a disrespectful way, then the people around you are going to see that. And that means that's what's going to come back to you. So if you maintain this appreciation and this gratitude towards your parents and elders as a wider community, then it will foster more wisdom in the community. And you'll see that more people will treat you polite, kind, friendly, and respectful because that's the way you're treating others. So there's this kind of special place in the mind of a practitioner of these teachings for moms and dads or caregivers and elders. And that's not going to come natural for someone who hasn't grown up with these teachings because we don't grow up that way typically. And that's something that you'll probably have to cultivate. And the way that you cultivate that is to learn how to practice true love. Get rid of any kind of expectations or obligations or things that you want from your parents and just love them as they are and appreciate them for giving you this life. Appreciate them for bringing you up, for feeding you, for showing you the world. And if you can have that appreciation for them and not wanting anything from them, 
then you can build your relationship from there and see how it goes. And then ultimately, if you're able to share a little bit of these teachings with them in your own way, then maybe that can be something that you do to help them along. But ultimately, they may need to be reborn and you have to be comfortable with that and letting go and realize that if they're going to attain enlightenment and escape this cycle of rebirth, it has to be through their own decision making. You can't force someone to attain enlightenment. They have to do it on their own. All you can do is encourage them and kind of perhaps influence it a bit. And having done that, the Buddha says, you've done enough for your parents. So that's everything that I was going to share today. If you guys have any questions on any of this related to parents or true love or partners, you can ask any questions that you like in the same ways that we typically do by submitting comments or raising your hand electronically. I had a question, David, about establishing our parents in wisdom, and you've touched on this, but like many people that are probably listening to this class, my parents have never heard of Buddhism, and if they did hear of it, I think there would be a certain level of judgment and closed-mindedness in regards toward it, and I was asking if you have any suggestions on skillful ways to help enlighten such a person and help share that wisdom with them. Yeah, it really comes down to understanding the individual and who they are. So knowing you grew up in South Carolina, I have a feeling that your parents might be Christian and kind of grew up in that. Yeah. So Jesus' teachings are actually very, very similar to the Buddhist teachings. And most people don't realize that. But probably the more you've learned about Buddhism, James, you probably see that, right? You see that Jesus taught all of these same things. So you can actually help your parents through Jesus's teachings since that's what they actually understand. So if you saw your parents being judgmental, for example, and that's something you mentioned, well, Jesus never taught anybody to judge each other. So you might find a skillful way to kind of introduce that to them and kind of help them see that. Here in Thailand, it's very common for parents to sit up on the sofa and couch and children to kind of sit on the floor. So there were times where my wife's mom was needing help and we could tell that she needed some of the wisdom of the Buddha. And even though she's completely fine with us sitting on the sofa together with each other, we purposefully sat on the floor and talked to her about the Buddhist teachings while sitting on the floor. So she didn't feel like we were trying to come over the top of her. And our father, the same way. My wife's father, before he died, he was a monk for the last maybe eight or 10 years of his life. And there were times where we felt like we needed to share some of these teachings with him. And we would do things like sit on the floor to show humbleness and that, hey, we just mean well here. Or we would take them out for food or we would bring them food in the house and we would let them eat and give them food. And then we would kind of gradually take the conversation into things that we felt like that they could benefit from. Now, we never use the words like, you know, mom, we think you're wrong here. You shouldn't be doing that. We need to have a serious talk about this, right? We didn't take it that way. We kept it very light and we just kind of slowly shared something here or there without using the word, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the, the Buddha or anything like that. So you could oftentimes teach people by asking them questions 
So if you observe that your parents are being judgmental and you're hearing that from them, you could say, Mom, I'm just curious. I haven't studied Jesus' teachings for a while. Does he teach for people to be judgmental? And you know the answer to that question, but you're asking her a question as a way for her to kind of teach herself. Because one of the most skillful and best ways to teach somebody is have them teach themselves. So if you ask them a question about Jesus' teachings, they're going to have to go into their own mind or into the Bible or something else, and they're going to have to come out with an answer. And they're essentially teaching themselves. And you're asking them that question because you're interested in them hearing the answer. You already know the answer. You're just trying to skillfully raise it to the surface of their mind so that they can see it for themselves. You have to navigate that you know, very well, and you have to have very good use of the five factors of well-spoken speech. You, know, you might not be able to come in right away and share that with them at the moment that they're being judgmental. You might have to wait a little bit and find the right time to speak with them and kind of introduce that to them. So each individual situation is different, but the more you do it, it becomes very natural and very easy to do it. And then when your parents are like, oh yeah, you're right, James, Jesus never taught us to be judgmental. Maybe you don't say anything after that because they got the lesson. And then as you do this more and more, they will start becoming accustomed to James guiding them in this way, they won't maybe say that, but they'll be more open to your interactions with them because they observe that as you share these little tidbits of information with them, it's actually helping them. So it seems so it's very important is simply communicating with people with ideas and in a way that they understand through their own language, such that perhaps you're teaching them in some sense the Four Noble Truths, but you're not actually using that language. Would you say that's correct? Exactly. You're meeting them where they are because you're not attached or you're working on not being attached to any one particular way. You're meeting them where they are and you're able to, with wisdom, skillfully communicate with them in a way that's beneficial for them rather than like, mom, you know, you shouldn't be judgmental. That's not right. You know, that's going to make her feel offended. And if she's got ego in there, she's going to perhaps be upset about that, right? Where you can say, mom, I'm just curious. I haven't seen Jesus' teachings for a while. Is there anything in the Bible about judgment that we are supposed to judge other people? You know, and that's asking her a question rather than telling her something and pointing out where she's wrong. So that's the way to get away from the blamelessness, that five factors of well-spoken speech has blamelessness in there. So that's the way to eliminate any blame is by asking people questions. And that's one of the things that I do with my son and my wife a lot is rather than sit down and actually physically teach them something, I will ask them questions so that they teach themselves. And then that way they can see the truth for themselves. And that's what I just did with Manal as well. When I said, you know, Manal, let me ask you a question. If when the Siddhartha Gautama left, if his wife became angered or sad, what caused that? And Manal answered it herself. She knows the answer. So she answered it herself without me having to tell her she already knew the answer. So this is a way to, that the Buddha used to guide people all the time. 
the more you read his teachings in the words of the Buddha, he oftentimes asks people questions. And he asks them questions, and then when they answer the question, then he shows them how their answer, they already know the answer to the question, and he just adds his little bit of spin on it to help them see it more clearly. And ultimately, as you said, it's it's that person's decision and it's their path to to take. So we can share this while not being attached to the results and as a result of not being attached, not allowing it to make us discontent. That's perfectly correct, James. So in this example, if you said, Mom, you know, what does Jesus say about judging? If she was like, I don't care what Jesus says, this person's wrong and, you know, and that's what happened. You just have to be comfortable with that. And you just have to accept that. Whereas if you ask this question and you expected and wanted and craved for this meaningful, loving experience where mom's mind is like, aha, James, you're correct. Ah, you know, like, wow, it's so wonderful. If you expected that and wanted that and you didn't get that, then your mind's going to be discontent. So oftentimes you need to just put out something and contribute to this person's life in a way that is only going to be beneficial if they choose for it to be beneficial. You can't force them to learn what it is you're trying to share with them. You can just create conditions such that they have the opportunity to learn something, but it's up to them whether they choose to learn it or not. Yes, and I suppose that everyone here has had multiple rebirths and it's also simply acknowledging that there are people in this world that are going to have to continue to have rebirths and that's okay because each of us did. Exactly. All of us that are in existence today have had countless rebirths and this practice isn't about going out and saving everybody and trying to convince everybody to practice Buddhism. What this practice is about is your own practice. But as you become more and more wise and you've eliminated any kind of arrogance or pride in your practice, then there are skillful ways that you can actually contribute to people and help their life. And one of the ways that you learn this is by spending time with people who are on this path and that are further on the path than you. So for example, if you came here to Thailand and you spent a few weeks or a few months and you kind of saw how I go around and I interact in the local community, you would see certain things and observe certain things. You're like, oh, wow, I like how David did that. That was kind of interesting. Maybe I might try to do that a little bit. Um, Like last night, I went to the market and there's this one place I go to all the time and there's another vendor next to her that we're friendly with and we're friendly with all those people. And the lady, I asked her about a couple of things and I was buying some vegetables and I said, is this pork skins? And she's like, no, that's not pork skin. That's not pork skin. You know, that's protein. That's the, and I said, "Um, I'm just curious, why are you speaking harshly with me? And then she was like, oh, oh, am I speaking harsh? And then I just stayed quiet. So I just asked her a question. I said, you know, why do you feel like you need to speak harshly with me? And it was just that she lost her concentration for a moment. And she has some kind of craving there that was creating that harshness in her speech. But rather than me being angry or frustrated or irritated, I just asked her a question and then she caught it right away and she saw it for herself. And 
these are the skillful things that you can do with people to kind of help them a little bit along the path. And I'm not angry at her. I'm not upset with her. I'm, I don't think there's anything wrong. When I go back to that market, we're completely friendly. I'll continue to buy stuff from her. I don't have any vindictiveness towards her. She just lost her concentration. She lost her, her practice for a bit. And there somebody was loving and kind and compassionate and just kind of touched her heart a little bit just reached out and kind of touched her heart and kind of tapped her heart and said, uh, why are you being harsh with me? You know, why, why are you speaking harshly? And this can just be like a little bit of a reminder. And that's something that we do for each other in a Buddhist community. Although people haven't done that with me because they don't speak English too much. But where I see the opportunity to do that, I see Thai people doing it with each other is kind of slowly helping each other and just kind of giving these little gentle reminders without making a big deal out of it. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions that we have for today. All right. Well, you guys are surely learning a lot by this point in chapter 15. We're really have moved through this book to the point where we've only got about another nine chapters and some additional information after that. And then we'll end up starting this whole program over again. This topic of true love, it's quite challenging for me to teach. It's very challenging, in fact, because to be able to kind of get into your mind and be able to help you truly understand what is true love is quite challenging because you've grown up and I grew up with understanding love in a completely different way than what we would call true love. All of us have love in our mind and in our heart. We all have love for people. But oftentimes that gets tainted or polluted with this craving, desire, attachment. So it really requires a lot of this intellectual learning to understand what is true love. But then even more so, it requires the direct application to help you see it, that when you're struggling in your relationships and you're having challenges in your relationships and you reach out to me as a teacher and help me understand the struggles that you're having, then I can show you where the craving, desire, attachment is causing the problem for you. So rather than tell me all the good things and all the wonderful things that are happening in your life, because as you learn and practice these teachings, I know things are going to be going wonderful and things are going to get better and better for you. If you share with me the challenges and the struggles you're having in your relationships, I'll be able to help you and guide you and kind of show you some different thinking that you can consider as a way to move something forward and let go of the craving desire attachment that's in the relationship so that you can practice more and more of this true love that's in there bubbling and interested to come out so that your partner can feel that and experience that so don't hesitate to send me a private message or post something in the Facebook group or ask questions in these classes or schedule a personal discussion with me where you can talk privately and you can share a bit about your relationship with me and some of the challenges that you and your partners are having, you and your parents, you and your children, you and your friends, your brothers and sisters, your co-workers. And when we talk about those things, then we have some real world examples, some real tangible things that you're involved in right now. And you can see how to apply this. And then as you apply it and you see that it's working, you'll get more and more comfortable with how to practice true love. 
one of the things that making it hard for you to potentially understand and practice true love is that you've probably never experienced a relationship that had true love without craving desire attachment. You've certainly been in relationships where there is love, but pretty much every relationship that you've ever been in has been tainted with this craving desire attachment. So you haven't been able to see true love very clearly before. One of the first times that most people experience a relationship based in true love is a relationship with their Buddhist teacher and understanding how to practice when there's no expectation, there's no obligation, there's no interest to control or force you to do one thing or another. And when you feel what that feels like in a relationship with your Buddhist teacher, where there's literally no obligation, there's no expectation, there's nothing that I want from any of you. And when you feel what that feels like and you it feels comfortable and it feels peaceful, then you kind of take those qualities of the relationship and you apply it to other parts of your life. That when you feel what that feels like to not have somebody require something from you or want something from you or expect something from you, then when you feel a bit of what that feels like, then you can more readily apply it in all these other relationships. And as you do, it's going to be a slow, gradual process of figuring out how to practice this. You first have to gradually figure out what it is. You have to gradually figure out how to reflect on this and understand it. And then you have to gradually apply it in daily life in more and more and more of your relationships. Just like everything else we talk about, you can't learn about it in this class and then just immediately start doing it. You're going to have to gradually apply it. So that's where the personal guidance is really important. So feel free to reach out as you're having challenges in your relationships. That's what a Buddhist teacher is for, is for you to reach out and ask for guidance and have the trust and confidence to know that when you share with me about things that are going on in your relationship, that's just between you and I. It doesn't go anywhere else. Not even my wife or my son hear about the details of the personal discussions that I have with students. So feel free to reach out. Feel free to get help. I know that relationships are a struggle and difficult because I I struggled and made my way through them my whole life until finally I figured it out with the Buddhist teachings. And now I'm here offering that support and that encouragement to you to help you learn the same thing. Because I have a genuine interest in seeing you be well. I have a genuine interest in seeing you be peaceful. I love you. And I don't want anything from you. I don't expect anything from you. I'm only interested in encouraging you, supporting you, and motivating you to continue on this path and continue to learn. So feel free to reach out as you need support and you need guidance on this path. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 16. Chapter 16 of this book is all about the ego and dissolving the ego. It's titled, Dissolving the Ego. Ego Serves No Purpose. This is where we're going to be helping you to understand how to dissolve the arrogance and the pride the measuring and the comparing, the judging of others, right? Because this is one of the things that inhibits us from being able to love and have this true love is that we're measuring and comparing and judging people, right? So next week, we're going to dive into that topic. And 
that chapter has been completely rewritten from beginning to end pretty much there's still a little bit of content from the old book but if you haven't downloaded the newest book that is titled the words of the buddha developing a life practice the path that leads to enlightenment be sure that you download that book and you read chapter 16 either before or after class because we're going to talk about dissolving the ego or this conceit once again it's it's one of the biggest challenges of this path learning and practicing true love is a huge challenge dissolving the ego is a huge challenge so we need to talk about it and need to share that with you so that you can start practicing in a way to start eroding any kind of ego or arrogance or pride or judgment or measuring and comparing people and that's going to be very beneficial for your mind as you start training the mind to dissolve that ego so we'll do that on next sunday on wednesday we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation this is really part of what's going to help you to develop this true love and practice true love without attachment so on wednesday we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation and perhaps you're even doing that in your practice each day as you're practicing meditation breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation so I'll see you either Wednesday or Sunday. And until then, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.